would soon be dark and time was not on his side. Painstakingly, he traced a length that ran alongside a vein and which drained into a channel connected to a vein in the chest. Through this branch, Dr. Carruthers had discovered that the nutritious properties of food products enter the veins, conveying them to the heart, the blood pressure, the blood acting as a sluice, sluice. Unlike most of his contemporaries, Thomas's mentor, Thomas's mentor had long held that the lymphatic flow was afferent, draining tissue fluid from the organs and gut back to the heart. Three years before, the old man had completely lost his sight, but with the help of Thomas, he had proved conclusively that his theory was right. Prior to this, most of his colleagues had believed the converse to be true and that the arterial flow was in fact the opposite, toward the heart. This Dr. Carruthers and Thomas had been able to demonstrate was like laboring under the delusion that water ran up a spout rather than down it. Thomas now believed it was his duty to continue expanding on this hypothesis. He reported any new observations regularly to Dr. Carruthers, who listened eagerly to the protege, who had now become his eyes. Now and again, he would interject with a challenge or an adjunct, always enlivening any report Thomas made with a peppering of colourful expletives and jocular asides. The monkey's arse, it did, was one of his favourite. Fate had been cruel to the old man, depriving him of the very tools that were so vital to his craft, and Thomas felt privileged to be able to continue work so vital to the understanding of the human anatomy. The young man squinted and pushed away the lock of dark, blonde hair that had flopped forward with the back of his blood-stained hand. For a moment, he stood upright to straighten his arc, aching back. He was fine-featured, tall and slender, and cut a dashing figure about London. The lady especially noted his pale, flawless complexion and his smile, which revealed a mouth of perfect white teeth. The light was poor, and he knew that he would soon have to admit defeat. He had no wish to put a, stra put a strain on his eyes and suffer the same fate as his master. Out of respect for Mr. Smollett, he stitched up the large flap of skin over his belly so that he now looked quite respectable and replaced his sutures in alcohol. Thomas rinsed his bloody hands in water, and as he dried them on a towel, he heard the hoarse cry of the newspaper boy, shouting out headlines through the high window facing out onto the street. Continuing to tidy away his instruments, he suddenly found himself looking forward to Mistress Fine Silver's venison pie, a tankard of stout, and some good conversation with Dr. Carruthers. Afterward, they would sit by the fire in the master's study and Thomas would read that day's edition of the Daily Advertiser out loud. They would discuss the major news of the day, and then Thomas would turn to the obituaries so that Dr. Carruthers could keep abreast of old associates or adversaries who had been recently deceased. Rarely a week went by without someone with whom he had worked or worked on passing away. If the person had been a patient, Dr. Carruthers would relate his symptoms at the time of his treatment, be they gout or goiter, but if they were his colleagues, he might pause for a while, as if picturing them at work, and mutter some melancholy tribute into the brandy that he cradled in his lap. 
Thomas had all but finished clearing away when he heard footsteps outside his door. It was Mistress Fine Silver. Despite having worked for Dr. Carruthers for more than 30 years, she still had little respect for the practice of anatomy and believed in a strict mealtime regimen. It mattered not that, Tom, that Thomas was on the verge of some great discovery that could benefit all mankind. Dinner was at half past six sharp, and woe betide any man who challenged that. Mistress Finesilver also disapproved of Franklin, but had promised not to tell Mr. Cara, Dr. Carruthers about him in return for a regular supply of laudanum, which, had, which was her evening pleasure. Dinner is served, sir, she shouted through the door. She knew better than to enter the laboratory for fear of seeing something she would rather not. The venison pie was palatable, even if the meat was a little on the tough side. Another half hour in the pot would not have gone amiss. Thomas thought to himself as he, cha as he champed his way through his chewy haunch, through the chewy haunch, Mistress Finesilver had cut the old doctor's food for him. He insisted on feeding himself, but did not always succeed. After the meal, he almost invariably had sp spits and spots of gravy liberally splashed over his waistcoat, and Mistress Finesilver would dab it off with a damp cloth afterward, fussing like a mother hen. That evening, they sat as usual by the fire, and as usual, Thomas read out loud, starting with the top left column, and then working his way through the whole newspaper. On that particular day, in October 1780, it was reported that a great hurricane had killed thousands in the Caribbean and that the ships on Captain Cook's third voyage had returned to port in London only without their master, who had been slaughtered. But it, had, it was the news that his fellow countryman, Henry Lawrence, had been seized by the British and thrown into the Tower of London that caught... But it was the news that his fellow countryman, Henry Lawrence had been seized by the British and thrown into the Tower of London that got Thomas's eye, and he inadvertently tufted his approval, tutted his, his disapproval aloud. What upsets you so, young fellow? questioned Dr. Carruthers. He often called Thomas young fellow. Thomas framed his words carefully, not wishing to offend his mentor. We New, we New Englanders are not faring so well in our bid for independence, he informed him. Independence, balderdash, and biffle, came the swift response. If you colonies have your independence, then every Tom, Dick, and Harry here in England will be wanting a vote soon. Mark my words. Then what would come of us all? exclaimed Dr. Carruthers, taking a large gulp of brandy. There was a short pause. Then the old gentleman said, as he always did, So tell me, who died this week, young fellow? Thomas smiled to himself and turned the page. There was a list of five notables, starting with the most eminent. He began, Lord Hector, Scottish peer and expert swordsman, aged 67. He always paused to await a response from Dr. Carruthers. Expert, tosh. I patched him up once after a duel. Thomas continued, Admiral Sir Feltham. RN retired, fought during the Seven Years' War, and sustained an abdominal wound from which he never fully recovered. Oh, the old sea dog had the pox interjected the doctor. Next came a lady who had done many charitable works, followed by a lesser member of the Royal Academy. A well-known musician took precedence over a mathematician and an exclusive clothier. 
They were all known to Dr. Carruthers, and they all solicited various anecdotes and yarns, seasoned with the old physician's favorite expletives. All those bodies safely tucked up in their mort safes and vaults. Such a bloody day, such a bloody waste, was how he would usually wind up the evening. This lament was often intoned just after the man mantle clock had struck eleven. Bad time for me, young fellow, and I suggest for you too, Dr. Carruthers would say. Thomas was usually more than ready to follow his advice. On this particular evening, however, he returned to the front page of the broadsheet, folded it neatly, and put it on the desk. It was too late to finish reading the back page, he thought, although he told himself he might return to it the following evening. Had Thomas read the final page of the advertiser of that particular edition, however, he would have seen a small item tucked deep down on the right-hand column of the newspaper under the announcements section, Dread Death of Young Earl. According to the broadsheet, the 6th Earl of Crick of Boughton Hall in Oxford, Oxfordshire died at his home on October 12, 1780, aged just 21. But the unremarkable insertion went unnoticed, and instead Thomas climbed wearily upstairs, undressed, and as soon as his head hit the pillow, he fell sound asleep. Chapter 3. The face of Lady Lydia Farrell's dead brother peered in at the window. It appeared on her dinner plate by candlelight and in flames in the fireplace. It came to her when she was walking in the gardens or sewing in the drawing room. It was with her whenever, wherever she went and whatever she did, and every time it wore the hideously terrifying expression of a young man dying in unspeakable agony. Five days had passed since that fateful morning of Edward's death, and the memory of it was seared on her brain as indelibly as if by a branding iron. As if by a branding iron. Edward had just taken his physic from the file that had been brought earlier that morning. What was in it? Lydia's first thought was that the apothecary was to blame, that he had been mistaken in the quantities he had used, or indeed in the ingredients. It did not take long, however, for her thoughts to take a darker turn. What if someone had poisoned her brother? What if he had been murdered? Whatever the cause, he had fallen into a coma and died soon after. Since that day, doubt had hovered in the hovered in the air. It had floated on the ether. It had floated on the ether, like some poisonous mi miasma, infecting everything it touched. It tinged the looks of servants toward their superiors, and worst of all, it clouded the vision of Lydia toward her husband, Captain Michael Farrell, like a malevolent mist that shrouds the truth. You must try and eat, my dear, urged Farrell, sitting at the other end of the long oak table. He tucked into his ham and eggs as if nothing was untoward. Your brother was ill, he said. This is why he needed medication. The pity of it is, now, none of, none of us knew just how ill he was. Lydia watched her husband pierce the pink meat with his fork and envied his appetite. To say that he and Edward did not like each other would have been an understatement. They loathed and detested one another. Yet, despite the, despite the ever-present acrimony between them, they did, did at least tolerate each other for her sake as much as anything else. For her sake, too, Edward, in the will he had written on inheriting the Bowden estate and another in Ireland, had named Farrell as the chief beneficiary before should he die without issue. It was a fact that was lost to no one. 
aware that she was gazing at him. Pharrell looked up at her as if he read, he could read her thought, her innermost thoughts. He smiled, yet there was no warmth in his eyes. It was so different from that captivating look he had bestowed on her at their first meeting three years ago. Lydia and her mother, the Dowager Countess of Crick, were on a visit to Bath, when at the height of the season an unfortunate lack of communication left Lydia, her mother, and their maid, Eliza, without a room for the night. As Lady Crick waxed and wailed about their unenviable circumstances, Captain Michael Farrell, lately of the Irish Guards and Director of Entertainments at the famous London Pantheon, happened to be walking by on his way to the gaming tables. While Lady Crick's protestations assailed his ears, it was her daughter's elfin looks, together with her fine jewellery, that attracted his eyes. He swiftly introduced himself and offered his own room to the forlorn ladies. In the process, he won Lydia's heart. As a show of gratitude, the charming captain was invited to accompany them to the pump room the next day, and thus he began inveigling his way into Lydia's heart. At the various balls she attended, the ways he would always be given the first chance, and many more besides, and it soon became clear that the stallions was more than the passing fancy. There were other suitors, of course, but the captain's Gallic charm seemed to give him the upper hand. After Lydia returned home to Boughton Hall, the captain would send her letters almost daily and trifles of affection, books of poetry and ribbons. The young noblewoman was completely entranced by the handsome Lothario, and it was soon evident that she had that she only had eyes for him. Michael Farrell was a debonair, handsome, and utterly charming fellow. He was also a gambler, a flirt, and a fashionable profligate. Ever since Lydia found the maidservant Hannah sobbing in the scullery because of the bad things they were saying about the master in the village after that fateful day, she had looked at her husband in a new light. She had watched his long tapered fingers pour wine from flagons. She had breathed in, breathed in his musky scent, laced with cherub smoke and oilcloth, and listened to him give orders to serv servants in a cultured Irish brogue that was as soft as brushed velvet. She had seen his green eyes play on the white necks of the British servant girls and knock back a bottle of brandy before midday. Admittedly, he was no saint. But could he be a murderer, she asked herself, 